Welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast, where each month we take a deep dive with one author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barraclough, and this month I had the most wonderful chat with Kylie Ladd about her psychologically gripping family drama, The Way Back. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to everyone who listened to the first episode with Natasha Lester and give a virtual COVID-style elbow bump in particular to Carol Handel, who left a five-star review. Thank you, Carol. That's so lovely of you. And I look forward to recording many more interviews for you to enjoy, including with next month's author, the fabulous Candace Fox, who is letting us take a deep dive into her brand new novel, The Chase, which just came out two days ago. I've got a lot more to tell you about that at the end of the show, including how you can win a copy of Candace's novel. So stay tuned for that. Now to this month's interview. Kylie and I first met on Twitter quite a few years ago, as you do. I'm telling you, we might be in our early 50s, our very early 50s, I hasten to add, but we are all over this social media caper. I remember being struck by Kylie's honesty about her writing and her experience with being published. On top of that, she's really smart and funny and all the things you could want in a Twitter buddy. She's definitely somebody I'd recommend following. She also writes the kinds of books I love, full of family drama, complicated characters, and psychological and social and moral dilemmas that put her characters into all sorts of sticky situations. Kylie is a really accomplished writer, and that's why I invited her on the podcast. She's incredibly insightful when it comes to the process of writing, and also brings her psychology training to the table, which I think adds an extra layer of complexity to her stories, something we talk a lot about in today's podcast. Kylie and I talked for over an hour about her process, how she structures scenes, uh, dialogue, pacing, uh, the importance of reading your novel out loud, and of walking the dog for thinking time. I could have easily kept talking for at least another hour. So, a little introduction. Kylie Ladd is a novelist and freelance writer. She has published four novels, After the Fall, Last Summer, which was highly commended in the Christina Stead Award for fiction, Into My Arms, which was chosen as one of Get Reading's 50 books you can't put down, and Mothers and Daughters, as well as The Way Back. Kylie holds a PhD in neuropsychology and lives in Melbourne with her husband and two children. Now, because we're diving deep into Kylie's novel, The Way Back, there are spoilers in the interview. So if you haven't read the book yet, it might be a good idea to go away, read the novel and come back to this episode when you're ready. Right, let's chat with Kylie. Kylie Ladd, welcome to Writer's Book Club podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Michelle. I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to the chat and I'm delighted that somebody even remembers that this book came out because it has been nearly four years. So thank <laughs> well, you for having me. It stuck with me, uh, this particular book. I remember reading it and feeling really moved by it. The premise of it um, stuck with me as well, particularly being a mother. I think that any parent will read this um, and relate to it. So, yes, an, an excellent novel to have on the podcast. Where are you up to in your writing life at the moment, Kylie? Yeah, well, as I said, it's been four years since this one came out, not quite, three and a half, um, and I wrote another one straight after, but um, 
this is hard to admit, but I, I think it happens in the industry, so I'm going to admit it. That one was knocked back by my publisher, Alan and Unwin, who have published five novels uh, of mine and they've all done, you know, pretty okay. Uh, and that's very, that's difficult. That's that's a hard thing to take. Um, I can maybe see in retrospect that that novel is quite different. It's autofiction, so it's sort of part memoir. It's written completely in the first person, um, whereas all my other novels are written in the third pretty much with multiple points of view, which I believe we'll be talking about. <laughs> it is a different book for me um, and there was a reason for that and I wanted to write it, so no regrets. Um, I've recently received, however, a um, ASA, Australia Society of Authors Mentorship Award to work on that. So I'm quite delighted about that. that yes, that I saw was, that. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, look, that was that was a real um, real boost because, you know, they've, they had quite a lot of applications and they've clearly seen maybe that there's something in there. So there may be life for this novel slash memoir yet. Meanwhile, in the depths of COVID last year, I just got fed up with mucking around with it and trying to make it work and started something else, which I'm now three quarters of the way through and don't tell anyone I said this and I'm touching wood okay. furiously. I'm really enjoying it and I don't enjoy writing. So I'm, I'm enjoying writing this one. Um, it's back to multiple third person points of view and it's back to families and psychological issues. So it's very much my territory. I'm enjoying it. So um, I think that's always what authors are told to do when something gets knocked down, you just start on something else. That's our yeah. life. Absolutely. I think it's probably more normal than a lot of people realise. We don't hear a lot of those stories. So thank you very much for sharing that. I just, yeah, I'm, I've just wanted to say that it's funny that I was, I was devastated. And, you know, it's still disappointing not to get a novel that you've spent a year and a half working on up. And I really didn't tell anyone to start with, apart from my best friend. But the more I have distanced myself from it, started working on something else, been able to talk about it, the more I've mentioned it to other writers, I think... 70% maybe have come back to me with similar stories. And we don't talk about these things, just like we don't talk about what our advances are or what our sales are and those sorts of things. And I understand all that. It's, it's self-protection and this is a tough industry. But uh, I did want to mention on this podcast that, yep, I've had something knocked back and I'm going to work on it and I'm working on something else. And it does happen, even if you've had 10 years of publishing novels as I have. Yeah, so good to hear that you're working on something else and really enjoying it as well because uh, as any writer will be able to attest, writing isn't always the funnest <laughs> thing Enjoy to is do. not usually the word I use. Yeah. <laughs> Moments of joy, I think we have. Exactly. But, uh, yes. the rest of the yeah. time it's just a bloody hard slog. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> All right. Well, are you ready to dive into the way back and have I am a indeed. yeah I'm looking so you forward to revisiting it yeah. yeah I know I I loved revisiting it actually I um I thought oh I you know I sort of do know how it ends because I've read it before and then I just couldn't turn the pages fast enough I think, oh, that's lovely thank you I think people will read this and be able to relate to it on many different levels because before you're a parent you're a you're a teenager so we all remember what it, that's like and then you become a parent and you understand what that's like so you you know it's a sort of book that you can revisit and and uh, get something new out of each time which is what happened to me Good. so um we've had a few questions you've got a few fans out there kylie let's hope <laughs> hang in there i'll get something out of, else out eventually <laughs> one of the readers casey gill she says all your books are her absolute favorites and that's oh, quote bless you casey thank you <laughs> quote unquote. She's hit the nail on the head with this question because it's something that I had been wondering as well. She asks, 
You have an amazing way of writing from each character's point of view, engaging the reader without leaving them confused. Is this way of writing much more difficult than using one central character's voice? Well, if you look at my track record and you look at the book that didn't get up, that had one central character's <laughs> voice in first person, whereas all my others have had multiple points of view, um, four out of five of them in third person. Um, no, clearly it's not to me. Um, I do get asked this quite a bit, but I actually, and I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I think I find it easier to write in multiple points of view. Mm. And I think partly that might be, look, I'm, I'm really not sure, but um, in thinking about this previously, I do wonder if it's got something to do with my training and my long work as a psychologist, which I think we'll probably talk about at some mm. stage. Um, and, and knowing that there's always, I mean, we all know that there's more than one side to the story, but I see that all the time in my work and I think I realise, because I, I work with older people um, who are experiencing the onset of dementia and I have to, so, I, so it's not a story so much but I'm getting a history and I have to get that history not just from the person but they may not have all that much insight. I'm getting history from their spouse uh, who also might be protective uh, and have other reasons to give me a different story and then I get the story from their children and I talk to quite a lot of people and and I think maybe that's why subconsciously I've adopted this way of writing because I've just realised there's so many different layers of a story you can get at when you're coming from different points of view and you have characters with different amounts of skin in the game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So let's talk about those points of view because there are six points of view in this novel. How did you get your head into each character and, and how did you differentiate those characters? Um, I'll just say I had nine points of view in my second novel last summer. So mm, <laughs> that oh, that's was, right. Yes. Yeah, that was ridiculous and I won't ever do that again. Um, and even with this six, I had four main ones and then two voices, Cole um, and Terry, who mm. I only had a few chapters in their well, sections in their, in their voices. Uh, look, I, I do a lot of planning and a lot of thinking before I do my writing. Um, I'm not one of those writers who it just comes out of the ether too well. I mean, I guess it comes out of the ether somewhere, but then it, it all gets put down in notebooks and plans. And I think very much about uh, what I'm going to do before I start writing. And I do think that's the key, or at least it's the key for me. There's no rules for anything, but there's the key for me of writing different points of view is, is really um, being inside that character's head before I sit down and write that section. Even if it's only a 1,000-word section, I need to have been thinking about that character before I um, sit down and write them. And the way I do that is with copious notes and also copious dog walks. So... <laughs> The good old dog walk. The good old dog walk. Um, I will make sure that I um, I never sit down cold to a page. I will always have thought about, um, in some way I've thought about um, the character that I'm going to be writing about while I'm unpacking the dishwasher or walking the dog or what have you. I'll have looked at my notes, glanced over my notes, thought, what am I doing today? This is, what, this is the scene I want to write and then I'll be letting that character into my head in the hour or two before I start writing, if that makes sense. Are you one of those people who, if we see you at the park with your dog, you're kind of muttering to yourself in dialogue? <laughs> <laughs> Usually I'm muttering at the dog and saying, stop that, stop that, stop eating that, that's disgusting. <laughs> no, look, I'm really not. I'm really not. And that, that's the interesting thing. Well, interesting to me as a psychologist. Mm. I think what I do, and it all sounds a bit woo-woo and I'm not a woo-woo person, no, I don't actually go away. I, I look at what I have to do and I want. I get that character in my head, but I don't actually go away and think 
consciously about that character. I think mm. I just not. In fact, I'm often listening to podcasts or talking to my best friend in Sydney. Or um, I think I'm just letting that character stew or muck around in my head so that they're there when I do come back to the page. God, that sounds really no, yeah, weird, no. I think it? that's. I, I think it actually is how how it works. I mean, a lot of authors talk about going for a walk as being that magical thing that happens somehow when you're walking. Ideas percolate. It, it just it, something magical happens, doesn't it? Lots of walks, lots of runs. Hanging out the washing is yeah. another bigger one, I find. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too um, neurological on you, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, science as to why that's the case, that the, the prefrontal lobes of our brain take over and that's where creativity is is located, um, to, to make it really simple. Um Anne Lamott, in her book that, you know, most of the listeners will have, will have heard of, if not read, um, Bird by Bird, her, mm. her famous and deservedly so writing book, she talks about the creature in, I can't remember, I should have checked before this, I can't remember if she calls it the creature in the attic or the cellar, but the creature is somewhere. And she just talks about there being every writer having a creature, let's say, in the attic who is furiously stitching away at things and every so often opens the trap door and hands you something. And um, she's talking about the prefrontal cortex, even if she doesn't <laughs> realise that. But it doesn't matter what, what part of the brain it is. That is exactly what happens. Yeah. The brain is doing so, and I, and I find this fascinating and I love it as a neuropsychologist. I love this aspect of writing. Mm. It still thrills me many, many years of writing on that, that when something, a sentence comes out that I haven't expected and I go, oh, my God, my brain's done that without me thinking about it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. My brain has just done that for me. I hope that when you were rereading this novel uh, before the podcast that you had a few moments like that, oh, did I write that amazing line? Because, <laughs> you know, you should be really proud of, of the novel. But I, I do think that the subconscious, yeah, is it subconscious? Is that what is, is Yeah, that something what like that. Yeah, yeah something like is. that. But yeah. it's the prefrontal yeah. lobe yes. kicking yeah. in. Mm. Yeah, doing doing the heavy lifting. They can't do the heavy lifting though without having some material. It, it, it's yeah. a combination. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So for me, that means having the notes there as well and having thought through. And again, we're already getting off on tangents, but, <laughs> but I'm sure that will come up in plotting and things like that. But um, for me, that's that's how I combine the two. Anyway. Yeah. So with your different points of view, would it be fair to say that you write deep point of view? where we're really in each character's head? I guess so, and I guess that's what I try to do. I don't think I've ever, again, consciously mm. thought mm. I'm going to go right deep point of view. But, yeah, I like to be literally behind the character's eyeballs. I, I like to be in their skin. I want to be feeling, seeing what they see and feeling what they feel, the emotions, but also all the, the visceral stuff like what they smell and, and sense and, you know, hear and, you know, I, I write. I find I write too much sweat into my books. I've always got characters sweating. Um, <laughs> you know, I've had that pointed out to me. They've always got sweat dripping down their backs or you know under their arms. But I think that's part of being in deep point of view, isn't it? Is is feeling exactly what they're feeling. Yeah, and that's what the edits for, isn't it? To get rid of Absolutely. all the repetition and the sweat, etc. Too much sweat. Yeah. <laughs> so you say it's not really conscious and yet the characters are so different um you know when we're in cole's head so cole is the man who has kidnapped charlie he has a, a particular way of thinking i mean there's a lot of internal monologue with him isn't there and there's a way of talking so he's had an accident as we learn in the past somewhere and that's left him um what would you say yeah he's got an acquired brain injury acquired brain injury i knew you'd yes. have the right 
<laughs> terminology for that. Um, so the way that he speaks is just very simplistic. And, and then with Rachel, you know, <laughs> when we're in Rachel's mind, we're in the mind of a lot of mothers, aren't we, where it's engaging with the outside world and talking to the kids but also thinking about her job and, and what she's going to cook for dinner and all the different things that go on in a, in a parent's mind. Um, exactly. So she's got lots of balls in the air. And, she does. And I wanted to show that. I wanted to show all the balls that are there because Rachel, I think, is, is, is a little bit of a hard character and perhaps not perhaps as sympathetic as you'd expect the mother in a story like this to be. But I wanted to show that that's because Rachel is so exhausted and tired and yeah. keeping all those balls in the air. So it was important that that, that came across in her, um, not internal monologues, but in, in her point of view, yes. So yes. I'm glad that you got that impression. I just wanted to read a little bit here because I think this really captures Rachel's voice and also is what makes Rachel so relatable as a character. Just say it was forever. Just say Charlie was never found, that Rachel never discovered what happened to her. The idea made her crazy, made her bargain with God, or maybe not God, she'd never believed, but Buddha, Muhammad, Spider-Man, whatever, anyone who would listen. Bring her back. If you bring her back, I'll do anything you want. Go to church every week, give all my money to the poor. She was not a superstitious woman, but when the bargaining yielded nothing, she turned to ritual instead. If I hang the colours out by colour, Terry will ring and say he has her. If the porch light stays on, she's still alive. If I hear a kookaburra laughing, it means that she's safe. But the clothes were pegged chromatically, the light burned on and the kookaburra laughed and still no phone call came. And I just love the way that you've written that because you really feel like you're in the character's head. And I think that's what I was getting at by saying that you write in deep point of view. You're not saying Rachel thought this and Rachel said this and Rachel did this. We're actually in her head. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. ever noticed that, but, yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> that works. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that's probably why a lot of people love your writing so much is, is because the characters are so relatable and we are really in their head. Thank you. My characters are very real to me, which is yeah. a stupid thing to say. All writers would say that. But, mm. you know, I, I, there really is a part of me that believes they exist somewhere. What was the most challenging character slash voice and why, would you say? Oh, um, I thought it was going to be Cole. And I, you mentioned a little bit about Cole, so and I'll just elaborate a bit more. Cole is the the man that snatches Charlie. Cole has an acquired brain injury, as I said. Perhaps I should explain at this point that I make my money essentially. My my training is as a neuropsychologist, uh, and a neuropsychologist is a particular specialty of psychology where we have training in people with organic brain injuries. So we're not talking about, we're not counselling people in marriage breakups or getting them over their fear of flying or what have you. We're dealing with people who have actually had physical damage to the brain. So I work with dementia, but my very first placement was as a student was in traumatic brain injuries. So which is usually car accidents and and motorcycle accidents, that sort of thing. And Cole has actually come from my very first placement when I was a student of about 21 or something in my in my master's degree. Um, and wanting to get a character like that into the book, sorry, I'm getting off topic. Not at I all. Thought, it's I fascinating. Thought was, <laughs> I thought he was going to be my most difficult character because it is, as you mentioned, a different point of view. I very much wanted to write Cole as a stream of consciousness point of view because that is how somebody with mm. a brain injury 
as far as I can tell, I don't have a brain injury, but I've worked with people with brain injuries. Mm. As far as I can tell, that's exactly how somebody with a brain injury thinks. They're very much in the moment. It's very what we call stimulus bound. They're thinking about exactly what they see or feel. They're not thinking ahead. They're not planning or bargaining or reasoning the way that Rachel is. They are right there in the moment and and the sort of, oh, look at that shiny thing over there. And all they can think about is what they need or want or see right in that moment. So I thought that was going to be difficult to write. Mm. Um, it was actually a delight to write. It was so easy just to let your fingers go and not feel <laughs> like you have to keep your sentences tight and crisp and you could just wander off all over the place. So it was a lot easier than I expected to write. Look, I think the hardest character to write was Charlie, the mm. 13-year-old who was kidnapped. And that wasn't because of any technical reason. That was because it was so difficult and, and possibly Rachel too. It was so difficult to keep going back again and again and again to a character who was in a great deal of emotional pain, um, mm. had a great deal of fear. It's just exhausting writing a character yeah. like that. And Cole wasn't. Cole doesn't have the emotions because of his brain injury to feel those things. So Cole was a relief to write compared to those two, and that completely surprised me. I, yeah. I guess because he's removed, isn't he, emotionally? He doesn't realise, you know, he knows he's done something bad, but at the end of the day he's driven by his loneliness. He just really wants Charlie there for company. A hundred percent. And he, he's lost his insight, which yes. is what often happens in a traumatic acquired brain injury, particularly if it's been in a car accident where you, again, damage the front part of the brain, the, the yeah. part that inhibits you and stops you. I think he knows technically he's done something wrong, but there's a disconnect with his emotions. This is probably a good time to bring in a question from Penelope Janu, who is also a, a very prolific author. Mm-hmm. Penelope said, such a brilliant read, but also confronting in terms of what happens to Charlie and the impact on her family. I'd like to know if and how Kylie manages to switch off when writing about events that are terrifying yet relatable. That's a really good question and thank you, Penelope, for asking. It's interesting, I was thinking about this because I do switch off. I actually think the the issue with me is more switching on and that's a little bit about what we were talking about before is getting myself in the mind frame to write and working myself up to, to writing this stuff is harder for me. I actually switch off quite easily and that sounds hard and uncaring but I am pretty good at standing up from my desk, turning off the computer and saying, that's it, I'm done for the day. And I think that's because it's such a relief to be getting out of there. I'm sort of literally and metaphorically shutting the door behind me Mm. and getting out of there again. And I don't want to belabor this point, but the two things are are related. I, I think it's also part to do with my training. My job, as I said, is in detecting early dementia. I did my PhD in in diagnosing early dementia and Uh, that's what I've been working in that field for the last nearly 25 years is Mm. diagnosing early dementia, which means I spend a lot of my work days and I work two or three days a week making the diagnosis to families saying, I'm really sorry, but your mother, your father, your your spouse has Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body dementia or, you know, um, something like that. And I still find that after 20 five years, I still find that a difficult thing to do. And sometimes I even get a bit worried I'm going to start crying in front of families. So, um, yeah, I know. And um, That's a tough gig. (laughs) It is a tough gig, but it's a rewarding gig because someone has to do it. And if you do it well, you know, you can make a real difference to the families in the way that you help them Mm -hmm. uh, process the news and manage it. And mine is not a role going forward. I'm purely a diagnostic clinician. Mm -hmm. But it's really important to do that job right. And I don't take it lightly, doing that job right. But part of doing that job well is being able to 
finish doing it and walk away because you have another patient to see in half an hour and getting yourself back in the headspace to be prepared to go and see that next patient, if that makes sense. Mm. So I think I have got good at switching off, which, as I said, sounds heartless, but that's that's a work thing I need to be able to do. Self-preservation, really. Self-preservation. I, mean, yeah. I uh, Again, exercising, not so much walking the dog, but going for runs and swims always mm. helps when I've had a tough day and, and yeah. I often exercise later in the day rather than early in the day because uh, when I've finished writing is when I go for a run rather than before I start. That's that's the amble with the dog. But then running or swimming is when I've finished writing or being with patients. And I'm not necessarily thinking about the writing or the patient, but I think that's part of just getting it out. And I'm not a great runner or, or swimmer, and so I'm so busy trying to stay alive that mm. it, it gives me a chance, you know, <laughs> just to focus on that. I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And it, it washes everything out of me. Yeah. So. so one of the questions that you posed is how did you research what it's like to be kidnapped? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, a lot of it is good old Dr. Google or Mr. Google again, yeah. isn't it? I guess I'll say at this point, and it's in the author's note at the end of the book, is that what really wanted made me want to write The Way Back was an article in Who magazine. And I don't even, I swear to God, I don't read Who magazine all that often. I'm too busy reading, you know, important literary novels and, you know. I, I read who when I go to the hairdressers or yeah, at the supermarket, same. like everyone else, you know, um, or on the beach during the summer. And this this article was from years and years and years ago, but it was an, an article about Elizabeth Smart. I don't know if that name means anything to you, but she was a, a Mormon girl, and I, and I mentioned her religion for a reason. She was a Mormon girl in, in Utah in America who was kidnapped by an itinerant worker on her family's estate who had some psychological issues. Anyway, she was kidnapped out of the blue when she was 14 uh, dragged out the window of her family's house and held prisoner in in a tent up in the mountains of Utah, which is an extremely cold place to be held prisoner. Mm. And I hadn't actually thought about that. I'm thinking about that now, how cold I made it for Charlie. And, and clearly, yeah. there you go, that's the subconscious again. I hadn't actually made that connection until I yeah. said that right there. Um, and anyway, she was consistently drugged and raped and really poorly treated um you know and she was eventually found and rescued and she was taken back to her family um and and this is a girl who who at 14 had never even dated a boy um I said she was a Mormon because she's grown up in a very Mormon household with very traditional values of you know long hair and women wearing skirts and being modest and no 14 year old is is going to find it easy being kidnapped and taken away but I think even harder in the sort of godly family that she'd been brought up in Mm. And also harder, though, too, that means to go back. You're going back to a very religious family. And what struck me, and maybe, again, this is my psychological training, um, what struck me was how on earth is that girl ever going to settle back down into being a good Mormon girl again or settle back down into, I know she wants to, I know she missed her family terribly, but what she's been through, how is anyone ever going to comprehend what she's been through? How are they going to hold the space for her to come back into because she's going to be changed Um how on earth is she ever going to to adapt to that? And mm. and then a couple of years later, when she was in her early twenties, I heard through the media that she'd released a memoir, and I could not get my hands on that book fast enough because. And I wasn't thinking about writing a novel at this stage. I was just fascinated again, I guess, as as a human and a psychologist. Mm. I wanted to see what she had to say about um, how she'd adjusted. And by this stage, as I said, she was 21 and she'd very successfully, she's a very bright girl, completed school and she was on a scholarship at at college and doing really well and she'd clearly picked the pieces of her life back up and and put them together again. And 
I thought, okay, she'll have lots to say about how she's done this. And I was so disappointed because she said in the book, um, not disappointed that she succeeded and, and was well again, but she wouldn't say anything about it in the book other than I choose not to let that define me. And I thought, absolutely, mm-hmm. that's what you have to do. But I still thought, but how do you do that? How do you do that work? And I think that's what set me on writing the way back. And then it was to Dr Google and then it was reading lots of books because around the time that Elizabeth was found, in the next few years, all these other girls started turning up that had been kidnapped and held hostage, um, held prisoner for many, many years. JC Duggard, I think 14, 15 yeah, years, something yeah. like that, just ridiculous, ridiculous. amounts of time. Um, and Elizabeth was nearly a year. There were these other women who'd been held in a, in a house in Detroit, some of them for up to 10 years. There was Natasha Kampuch in Austria, mm, who'd, mm. who'd not just been held hostage for many years, but also had had two children fathered by her captor. And all these women had been liberated and gone back to their lives. And I couldn't, again, it was finding their memoirs, reading everything I could about them. Just some had gone back successfully and others had really, really struggled. Yeah. And you're and, very much interested in that. How did you get from release to well again exactly. or functioning normally again and that's the gap that you exactly. really explore in this that I really thing. want to explore yes and yeah. really exploring that and what it was like to be kidnapped really just came from reading those memoirs looking up mm. everything I could about kidnapping on on google and would you believe going through an online manual that I found I couldn't believe this this blew me away Italy and Mexico both have government sponsored or government run camps for people who've been kidnapped because there's been lots of those company, countries. Italy, um, not so much these days, but from the, the big days of the mafia, children were always being kidnapped um, and held for mm. ransom. And Italy, because uh, sorry, Mexico, because of drug issues. And there's a long history of kidnappings in those countries. And both those countries have programs where they send kidnapped victims to these camps. Well, they're places that they stay overnight. They're not necessarily brought straight back to their families they go to these halfway houses where they are um, given so much therapy and support to help them adjust to being back in the world again and I was blown away by that and Mm. there was it wasn't a step-by-step manual but it was this is how the program works and it's lots of therapy obviously Uh, lots of talking therapy but lots of doing therapy too lots of, Mm. of physical work to get people back in their own heads and back in their lives and that I think is what made me want to start writing this book because I was just so fascinated about how mm. you come back from something like that. Mm. When Alan and Unwin got this novel, I think they were delighted because crime was just, as I said, it's been out three and a half years and and it was probably a few years before that crime had started being as big as it is now. And I think they thought, fantastic, another crime novel. I think Jane Harper had started just around that time and certainly Chris Hammer had and Emma Viskick and Solari Gentile and, you know, lots of great crime authors and I think they thought fantastic and and they were going to, well, they did, I think, try in many ways to market this as a crime novel. But the interesting thing is I've never seen this as a crime novel. For one, we know who did it and where the... The missing girl is okay so and and we also know that the missing girl comes back it's there on the back of the book so you know that's not even a spoiler it's it's there right from the from the get-go that the missing girl the crime is solved or the missing girl comes back um i never saw this as a crime novel i saw this as a ptsd novel a post-traumatic stress disorder (laughs) novel that's a lot less sexy to market however and there's there's no real (laughs) section in in the bookstore for ptsd novels but really that's what i was interested in exploring that's what this novel is about is post-traumatic stress disorder 
think you've said in the past that you often have a word for each novel that defines the theme. So is PTSD, let's just say it's one word, is that the theme for your it is, was that novel? Yes, yeah. yeah. Recovery, I guess, was the other word. And and look, that's not to say that I think at the end of the book that Charlie's recovered. I don't think anybody's recovered at the end of the book. I think Charlie's parents' marriage has very big fault lines in it. I worried about them and would they actually make it in the long term? I mean, I think the her disappearance exposed a lot of the issues in their marriage. I don't think Charlie is deaf. She's definitely not recovered. She's still not able to go back to school, although she's thinking that maybe one day she might be able to. I don't think anybody's completely recovered and I don't know if you ever do completely recover from mm. something like this, but uh, recover enough to be functional again, I guess, is, you know, what I was interested in. Yeah, and the novel ends with not a complete, oh, my gosh, everything's fine now and dandy and we're all just going to get on with our lives, but it does end with a beautiful note of hope. I think I had to give the reader and myself that hope. Yeah, look, the novel ends and it, you know, I'm sure we can do spoilers on this because hopefully people have read the book if they're listening to The novel ends with with Charlie being able to stay in her own bed to sleep through the night. This is, mm. I think, three months or so after she's been returned to her family, which doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it is because she's ended up having to go in and sleep with her mum every single night after she's got back from being kidnapped. And, you know, it's a tiny little step of recovery, but I hope it suggests that there are other forms of recovery that will if she, she's been able to make this first step and the others will be able to follow on from that. Yes. Now, can we just go into writing craft a little bit more deeply? I'd really like to talk about pacing and I guess structure as well. So the novel's divided into three parts, before, during and after. But within those, you don't break it up by chapter per se. You, you, you move really fluidly between the characters in scenes. How do you know when to enter and leave a scene is that something that you consciously plan it is something I consciously plan mm. but it doesn't always end up happening that way mm -hmm. yes um I'm a, an insecure writer in that I like to know exactly what I'm doing when I sit down at my desk I, I really wish I could be like Solari, who's a, a, who I mentioned before, who's an amazing and prolific writer and and uh, we were once on a festival panel together and and we were both talking, we were taking questions from the audience about how we write and and I'm very much a planner and she's very much, I just sit down at the desk and it all flows out. That's not me at all. And then we just looked at each other like, who the hell are you? And, you know, <laughs> which planet do you come from? But anyway, I do like to know exactly where I'm starting and where I'm finishing and that helps me feel less anxious. I'm quite an anxious writer too. Um, I think a lot of writers feel a bit of fear about sitting down facing that blank page mm -hmm. and knowing when I'm starting and finishing helps me. So I've always got that plotted out what I'm going to do that said I'm not so wedded to my plots that I can't deviate and I've, I've found more and more over the years that I need the plots to get me started I need the planning I need the dot points but once I'm in a scene I will know intuitively if that's the right time sometimes I'll just write a line and I might have still had another three bullet points to go that I wanted in the scene but I'll write a line and I go no that's the right place to leave the scene and Sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but I think that's just experience, um, learning that timing. And, and look, I've, I'm no comedian, but I've heard comedians say the same thing, and, and I guess actors as well. You develop a sense for timing, for knowing, bang, that's, that's the point. I've hit that point that the audience will be with me, and that's the point where you want to leave a scene. You want to leave the audience with you and hanging on if you can do it, but at least engaged and interested in what you're saying. Um, 
or at a point where the character said or done something that you can't have cliffhangers at the end of every single section, but they've done or said something or they made some little gesture that has shown you there's going to be something else following yeah. on from that. And that's the place to leave it to engage the reader. Knowing that the end of a chapter or the end of those sections in this book is the place where the person is going to put the book down. That's the natural place they're going to put the book down yeah. because they're tired and they want to go to sleep or because the swimming lesson has ended and they need to put the book away. So you want to leave them at a place where they're engaged and they're with you and they're ready to jump back in with you next time they open the book or where they just want to keep on reading and going with that. So mm. so I, I make my plans and I think this will be a good place to end the scene and probably about 50% of the time it is. Mm. But other times it's something that comes out of the blue and I just go, oh, no, that's it. And now I'm going to have to work out all the other stuff that I wanted to happen in that scene. I'm going to have to either go back and try and make it happen or put it in somewhere else or do I really need it? Was that just scaffolding to get me to, to sit down and do the work? <laughs> that's right, exactly. And because you have all of these characters, I imagine that starting a scene, you need to consciously think in the voice of that character. So, for example, on page 79, the scene starts, giddy up horsey, but the horsey wouldn't giddy up even now that the girl was off it. We know we're immediately in Cole's uh, head, don't we? And even just the scene before that, a needle in a haystack. That was what it was bloody well going to be, a bloody needle in a bloody haystack. Sergeant Terry Blackwell took another swallow of his chocolate Big M, you know, <laughs> we're in Terry's head, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I love the way you did that. And I think anybody that is having trouble as a writer, differentiating voice, uh, I feel like this novel is a real masterclass in how to manage that. Thank you, Kylie. Have a look through the novel, everybody. You, just, you can even just read the first line of each section. Rachel, Matt, come quickly, Gia shouted. Rachel, instantly awake, heart pounding, you know, great. We're in Rachel's head, but not only that, we're in her heart, you know, where we're feeling that mother's panic. Oh my God, has she been found? Is there news? Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up. And, and, um, something I've only become more conscious of again the more I write. There's a real temptation to start each scene with a new character. Um, Alison, I'm using the characters in the book that I'm writing at the moment, Alison, you know, adjusted her dress. There's a real temptation to start the scene by identifying the character by name straight away because you don't trust the reader to know, and particularly in the way back, I, I'm not flagging those characters by name. Um, I'm not saying, you know, there's, there's no headline saying Cole and then, you know, moving on. There's just a little curlicue that says, okay, we're on a different point of view now. Yeah. There is a real temptation to feed the reader because you don't want them to get grumpy with you because they don't know what's going on. And that is something that I always come back to in my edits and I find too many sections that start with the name of the character. It's not a bad thing to do, but you can't do it all the time. It's so much better to start exactly as you've just identified with dialogue or with an action that's happening around them. A, it parachutes you straight into the scene. Um, and B, I think the reader gets more disinterested seeing you do the set making. They don't want to see you do the set making. They want to be right into the scene. So mm -hmm. um, I've often started scenes by writing them with Alison said or thought or did, what have you. And then I've realised and I've come back and I've crossed out the first two sentences and realised the scene starts two or three sentences in. And I think that's always a good trick for a writer to go back when they've... Because, again, if you're an anxious or fearful writer like I am, you, you need to work your way in. You need to take yourself gently by the hand and lead yourself into a scene. But sometimes it's very much worth going back and going, okay, now I'm confidently into the scene. I can go back and I can chop out some of the, some of the stuff 
you know, because mm, you, mm. you, you don't want to make a reader work too hard, but you don't want to make them not work at all. They'll, they won't thank you for that. You want them to, to have to do some figuring out for themselves because that's very satisfying. Even if they're not conscious, they're doing that. It's, it's satisfying for a reader to, to go, huh, I know where this is going, or I think I know where this is going. Yes, exactly. So, Scene versus summary. Let's talk about that. So in the during section, which is the the middle section when Charlie is missing, and we are getting some of Charlie's point of view of what she's going through in that section, you show the passing of almost four months. Can you tell us how you handle scene versus summary? What are some of the ways that you kept the story moving and the tension tight during this middle section? Look, I think again, this is um, this is a wonderful advantage of having multiple character points of view. I think it would be very difficult to keep the tension going if it was all just Charlie in that stable, lying there, wanting to be rescued and mm. feeling fearful and and horrible. I mean, of, of course she does, but no reader wants to stay in that for. 100 pages 150 pages I think having lots of little scenes and a lot of the scenes in this section are, are only a thousand or 1500 words is what manages to keep it moving forward because you could get bogged down in detail I do remember quite clearly thinking how much do I write at the first week after Charlie goes missing you have to write quite a bit because there's quite a lot of procedural stuff you have to get mm-hmm. in you have to talk about what's actually being done to find her with the police and the SES and um, that's you can't gloss over that sort of thing. That's very important. But you also have to be in the heads of her parents and her brother as they're coming to terms with the fact that, you know, she's been gone for a day, then she's been gone for two days, then she's been gone for three days. But again, there also comes a point where you have to stop that because that gets tedious too. And you have to move for the reader, you have to move the action forward. And it is quite a difficult balance to strike. And that was something I went back and forth over a lot. Did you I, in the editing process, you mean? Probably in the writing process, I write a lot more than I edit. I wrote a lot more about the first two weeks of Charlie's captivity before realising this is just dragging on and on and on. And while it felt important and I felt like I need to get everything on the page of what's going on, I also realised it was dragging on and and becoming not boring but um, too despondent and, you know, I had to go back and, and cut a lot of that out. I do my editing as I write and, and we can talk about that. Mm. But you're right, a lot of it is in the editing process, is keeping a section like that tight, is in the editing process, going back and cutting out half of what you've written um, and, and you know, just putting it in in the first place because you feel you need it there, um, you, you need to. And, and that's the difficult thing when you've done quite a lot of research. You want to get it all on the page. You want to show the reader what you know and what you've done. But too much of that makes it start reading like a textbook and, you know, makes you start looking like you're showing off or, or you know, trying to convince someone that you know what you're talking about. Going back and removing half of that, which breaks your heart because you know how many hours went into those sections, but yeah. uh, it does tighten up the book. Every time I write a section, I, I do overwrite a bit and I'll write 1,500 words and then I'll go, right, I need to go back and I'll set myself a goal of removing 500. I might not remove 500, but, I'll, you know, mm. I'll at least get rid of two or 300 and, and you know, I want to sob while I do it, but it's <laughs> invariably better for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, there's a great example on page 102 where you've shown that a week has gone by, but you don't just say a week later, X, Y, Z. The scene starts with Rachel going back to work or just to dropping work. into the office and someone's taken her car spot. And so you immediately think, ah, some time has passed here because why have they given her car spot away? And then, you know, she she was still upset when she reached her office, handshaking as she tried to get the key in the door. 
But then she would be, wouldn't she? Finally in, she sat down behind her desk and dropped her head into her hands. A week. Seven days, seven nights, Charlie had been gone. A week in which she'd slept five, maybe six hours total, and none of them consecutively. A week in which she could recall swallowing was a few pieces of toast and endless cups of coffee. A week and no news, nothing. It was as if her daughter had simply been swallowed up by the bush, had been spirited away from the earth itself. I just thought that was such a beautiful way of handling that passing of time because, A, you've introduced some tension there. Rachel's going to lose her job or she's lost her job or something's happened with her work. And B, you've also introduced this beautiful emotion, which we can relate to as a parent, because there are all the things that you'd be thinking, oh my God, a week's gone by without my baby by my side. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I was just listening to that thinking, God, I really hit it over the head a bit didn't I about a week you know I reiterated a number of times but um I love that because that repetition would be going through my god it's been a week a week I can't believe it's been a week that's how I would be thinking as a character good I'm glad you say that because I'm sure that's why I did it for emphasis Mm. for you know she can't stop thinking about this also I think I did need to signpost I mean I said a week initially because you do need to as, as we said before, you do need to signpost some things for readers. So you do realise that some time has elapsed, but you don't want to, particularly in this early stage of Charlie's disappearance, you do want to give them a, an, an idea exactly how far down the track we are. And you do have to do that along the way. It, it's something you have to do with characters' ages and things like that too, if they're important to the plot, that every so often you have to subtly remind people how old they are or how much time has elapsed, but without hitting them over the head with it. Um, yeah, yeah. A good reason and that says a good reason, exactly. And I think there was a good reason to go into Rachel's head and talk about that week because that week was a really horrible emotional week for her in which her character has developed. She's not the same person that she was at the start ago. of the novel. Lives. That's right. Ra- but- Rachel, she's the main breadwinner for the mm. family. And she also, as many working mothers will attest, that even if their husbands are completely willing and able to take up the slack if they're doing the earning, she's still a bit of a gatekeeper. And I guess I'm probably a bit like that myself in that she still can't, you know, she she wants to be the chief breadwinner. She wants to work full time, but she still can't completely let it go and let her wonderful husband, Matt, pick up the slack completely. She still has to charge in from work every night and go, right, have you done your homework? And has the washing been brought in? And, you know, a lot of that is from real life because I can be a bit like that too. And it's mm. not a good trait, but I think it's a realistic trait. I think a lot yep. of us are like that. And yes, you're right. Rachel's mind was all over the shop because she was having to hold all those balls or she was choosing, making herself hold all those balls in the air. And her point of view has to change once Charlie is gone. And, Mm. you know, it's ridiculous. We, the reader, know that she's being a bit ridiculous going into work a week after Charlie's gone and expecting that she's going to clear her emails. We know that, you know. (laughs) But we have to see Rachel try it because that's who Rachel is. She's she's used to being completely in control and being the one who gets stuff done and holds it together. And we have to see her fail at doing that. Um, Which goes to character development. Absolutely. I was just about to say, which which shows us the arc of her her character, really, 100%. Now, you said before that you need to outline that that's part of your writing process. And this goes to a question from Lauren Chater, also a beautiful author and member of our writing community. Um, Yes, I loved Gulliver's Wife. It was fantastic. Wasn't it beautiful? Lauren's 
asks, I'd love to know how Kylie plots her novels. Does she know where the story is going or does she enjoy finding out along the way? Now, I know you do plot, but can you tell us a little bit about the process that you use for outlining? I think the question is interesting because people assume it's an either or, and it's not. I do like to plot and I do love finding out things along the way. That said, I am a really, like, you know, listeners and writers all know that there's plotters and there's pantsers and, you know, people who plot their work and people who just write by the seat of their pants. And I'm definitely in the plotter category, but not only am I in the plotter category, I'm head girl at the plot category I'm, <laughs> or one of the prefects at least. I, I, I like to be organised. There's quite a lot of Rachel in me and I like to know what I'm doing and I plan and plot to within an inch of my life, to within an inch of my book's lives, um, possibly to their detriment. I wish I could stop. I've tried. Um, I've tried to be a bit looser. Um, it doesn't come naturally to me and I think you write the way you write. You know, you and I both know that, that you talk to lots of people, you're a writer yourself, you're a reader. There are no golden rules for writing. You, you just have to get the work done the way mm. you get it done. And the way I get it done is by plotting and planning. When I have a novel idea, and I'm not one of those people who has 10 ideas before breakfast. I get very few ideas. I'm not particularly creative. Uh, when I get an idea, Kylie, I'm not. Yeah. I get about one good idea every few years. I go, oh, thank God I can write a novel about that. <laughs> and I have to hold on to it for dear life, Michelle. And that's what part of the plotting and the planning is about, is holding on to it, is fleshing it out, is making sure I have got a story here, that I've got something to say. I, mm. I hate the idea of not having something to say. So, look, I plot exhaustively. I, I start with a big two lines what this book is about and then I just expand out basically. So I start with an idea. I always start a novel with the final scene in mind. It's like swimming for the opposite shore. I like seeing the land on the other side. I always know where a novel is headed in terms of I don't always know how I'm going to get there, but I do know where I'm going to land and none of my novels have ever landed somewhere different. Um except for one that the publisher asked me to rewrite the second half of, but that's another story. <laughs> that's so a whole other story. Oh, my God, I might start crying if I talk about that. Um, I, I like knowing where I'm going. Once I've got an idea for a novel, I think a lot about my characters and uh, this is a bit embarrassing. I get an exercise book because I am so old school and I've never opened Scrivener and it just scares me. Uh, I get an exercise book and I start writing down things and cutting out pictures of people I think might look like my characters and I write down in my characters what they do and what they look like and what little quirks they have. And then I start blocking out a novel. I'll, I'll say I want this to happen in the first section and, and this to happen in the second section and then I just keep drilling down and down and down until I have plotted out every scene in the novel that's that's all that almost feels a bit yeah psychotic I don't know I love it I, I'm trying to do that at the moment and it is so hard but I guess if you do do that you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting up at the front end aren't you you are I spend a good three or four months doing that before I yeah. commit to the first word on the page or on the mm -hmm. screen for the first time ever with the novel I'm writing at the moment I've used index cards which I've never used before I've always used an excel spreadsheet before which I think I've talked about in other interviews this time I saw somebody else do it online and thought oh that looks interesting and that's been fantastic I've loved it I'll do it again because you can okay. shuffle things around and you can lay them on the you can lay all your scenes out I'm, I'm probably most people listening to this are going dirt you know <laughs> but, but it was a revelation to me not just to plot all my scenes and have them there on one continuous document, but be able to put them in front of me and move them around and see how they might work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do plot to a degree of detail, but 
also answering Lauren's question, I wanted to come back and say, but I'm not so wedded to those. It sounds like I might be, but I'm not so wedded that I have to stay with it. Things develop when you're writing and a sentence comes out, the, the creature in the attic pops up and hands you something and you go, oh, I didn't expect that. Now, I never get entire plot lines come to me that way. And I'm not like Solari who, who told that festival audience that she never knows. She writes crime and she goes, I never know who's actually done it until I'm about seven-eighths of the way through the book. And I'm See, that gives me palpitations to not know. I just felt sick. Yes. I just looked at her and said, you freak, you know, how could you not know? How could you write, like, by that stage, 70,000 words and not know how you're going to tie the damn thing up? But she goes, oh, it sorts itself out in the end. But it's horses for courses. Exactly what I was going to say. It is horses for courses, yeah. But what does happen to me is characters do reveal themselves to me, mm. do do things I might not expect. They're not major life-changing events in the plot, but they'll shift the direction subtly. All the new themes will be introduced that I hadn't thought about and will beckon to me and I'll go, yeah, actually, that's really interesting and I'll explore that. So while I have the plot and the plot, as as I've said before, gives me the security to start writing, I do love seeing how characters develop and unfold and I don't necessarily know all the ways they're going to do that or or the way that we're going to get to the, we I always get to that final scene, but I don't always know the way that we're going to get there and mm. it surprises me sometimes. So it's still a journey for me. So those index cards will be scenes. So will you write down, oh, okay, I need to show that Matt's really stressed and I need to show that as part of his character development. So what is a good example that I can use to show that? Exactly. You've got it 100%. As well as writing down my scenes on, on the index cards, I also write down on a Word document or or in my exercise book, I do write down what I think each character's arc is to remind myself. So literally this person starts off like this, you know, what the character's journey is. And I try and write down, God, this is just, again, sounding too anal for words, but I do try and write down three main, three or four main beats I want to hit at some stage in the novel for each character because they're signposts on their their journey, you know, using all those sorts of words. And this is a podcast, so you can't see me doing the the air quotes. But it's quite different having scenes you want, but you also need to be thinking of what's going on for each character. Like you you need the two different levels or three different levels. You need to be thinking um, about each character and their own story, but that's separate from the overall big story. And then, yes, you need to be able to integrate the two. Does that Mm. make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes sense to me. The pants probably do it more intuitively, really, yeah. because they're still hitting yeah. those beats, right? Absolutely, yes. God, I wish I could do that just so intuitively. <laughs> yeah, there's probably other things you do intuitively. As, you, as yeah. you said about the timing, that's something I've realised I am doing more and more intuitively, and that could well be practice. That could well be the, yes. the 10,000 hours or what have you. But there are things I do do intuitively. And there are things I don't. And I think there's no point beating yourself up about what Mm. you do and don't do as long as the work gets done, you Mm. know. Yeah, you just Mm. do it the way you do it. I do also work to, um, and and this is sort of part of the plotting planning, I do try and write a 1,000 words a day. That's And I think that's also part of it. Um, A lot of writers just want to write a scene or, or they might also have word counts. But the word count is also an important thing for me because I know that then the work gets done. And, you know, I realised when I still had young children, both my kids, this is my first year where I have no children at school, hooray, both my children are at uni, but I started my writing career when both my children were at primary school and I realised pretty soon I did the maths and realised that if I could write a 1,000 words a day for two days a week, 
even taking out school holidays, that would be 80,000 words and that's a novel. So as a control freak, that was important to me to know that I could theoretically write a novel in a year. I've never written a novel in a year, although the one I'm doing at the moment might possibly go close. But again, it's like seeing that land on the distant shore. It's knowing Mm. that if you just keep chipping away, it will get there. Because again, I guess I'm giving the impression and it's true that I get overwhelmed by, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. A novel is a big thing. It's a whole world. So for me, breaking it down into scenes, but also breaking it down into it's all right. You don't have to write the whole novel today. Just try and get another thousand words, another fifteen hundred words that can become a thousand words down. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's all you've got to do today. Yeah, and they're clean words for you, aren't they? Do you want to confess yeah. your editing? <laughs> yes, yes so I think you should. Me. People will hate me for this, and this is not how they say to do it in the manuals. But as we've already ex- just you know talked about, there's no one way of doing things. I think it should be a brag. I'm just going to flag that with you people. This is pretty amazing. Go. Michelle said to me when we were talking about what we might discuss today, she said, do you want to talk about your editing process and all the editing process for this novel and were there things that changed between the first draft and the last draft? And I had to confess that the book that was published is pretty much the first draft. I, (laughs) I didn't do another draft. I handed that in and Alan and Alan, who are usually pretty tough on me, um, said actually this one's pretty clean we're just going to do a copy edit for this one I said what and they said yep just a copy edit for this one so this is actually a first draft now clearly I still you know it doesn't mean I'm the world's best writer because I would have got my next book up if if I was but um I think it does show that you've become very accomplished thank you let's let's go with that interpretation I also though think it also does show the degree of neuroticism that goes into it all the planning and and I'm not Mm. really saying that as a throwaway line I am saying that like you said before I've done a lot of the heavy lifting before I come Mm. to the page I've done a lot of the heavy lifting in the months before I write the book just thinking so much about it and writing character arcs and writing character summaries and setting up my index cards on my excel spreadsheet but then I also do the heavy lifting before I sit down and write each scene in that I you know I let it marinate overnight I put it in my mind what I'm going to write the next day go away and sleep on it or you know let it be there while I'm walking around so so it's there and then when I write and a lot of writing coaches will say never edit your own writing just let it flow get it all you know so much better to have words on the page that you can edit later and I agree with that 100% but it doesn't work for me I I can't leave a bad sentence or something that I consider a bad sentence. I edit every single sentence as I go. Every sentence is as polished as I can make it before I move on to the next one. I do a lot of my writing out loud. I will talk, I will say a sentence 15 times. It drives everyone else in my family nutty. My husband says, I can just hear you. You just murmur for hours. There's just this murmur coming from the study. And it's me just checking how a sentence sounds and I will not let it stay on the page and I will not go on with the next one until again I really am sounding neurotic but I think that's how I end up with clean copy and I'm not saying that's the way you should do it but again that's just the way that I do it. Yeah it works for you and it actually works for speaking of Penelope Janu who asked one of the questions earlier I know Penny works that way as well. Yeah. Here's to us Penny. She works on a scene or or a chapter and she will work on that during the day and then she'll go back, um, reread, edit, and she won't move on until she's got that. A hundred percent. It's just uh, partly it's a perfectionist thing, but it just Mm. nags away at me knowing I have to go back and fix something. I'd rather just get it right. And then that lets my mind be free for 
the creature to hand down things or, you know, for the little creativity I do have to emerge. But if a part of my brain is preoccupied with just that's just not quite right, I can't, I can't move forward. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. It takes me five, six hours to get those thousand words. So that's, you know, I know other writers will get a thousand words in an hour easily, but, you know, that's the price I pay. And that's what I want to say. That's why, you know, people who hate me because I this didn't take 13 drafts. But my novels still take me two This took me two and a bit years. You know, yeah. they, it's, it all takes the same amount of time. Mm. It's just, you know, the way you use that time going along. So find your process. Again, I know I banged that one over the head as well, but, you know, <laughs> you, just, you have to honour. It's not just find your process. You have to honour your process. You have to do what works for you, what gets the words on the page. And the reading out loud, you rate that. You... Oh, I so rate that because you hear the clunkiness you hear the repetition you hear when the dialogue sounds forced and when when the dialogue is really because you're trying to get a plot point across rather than being the sort of natural dialogue that people would speak to each other I will have read the book out loud 10 times I reckon by the time I've I've handed it in because that's the only way I know if it works to me you know Mm -hmm. to my ears that yeah recognize rubbish or recognize flaws much better than my eyes do Mm -hmm. yeah Well, Kylie, I think we have done a pretty good deep dive on the way back. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. We first met a few years ago, I think, on Twitter, didn't we? So we're 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 sort of the best. Yeah. Friendships were formed. I yeah. know. This is yeah. our first time actually. Oh, no, second time face-to-face because we did meet at Better Reading one time. At Better a- Reading, that's right. Yes, yeah. And, look, people still say, you know, I hear people say, oh, Twitter's horrible and why would anyone be on Twitter these days? But I've met so many wonderful people on Twitter. I still meet wonderful people on Twitter and Twitter is all about what you make of it. You know, it's it's who you follow and I, I only followed nice people or an inch, not just nice, I'm sorry, it's not enough to be nice, interesting people, you know, people who've got something to say and Twitter is still a wonderful place for writers I think in particular because you get to play with words and you get to meet like-minded souls and it's just fun still so and I'm so glad grateful that I've met people like like you and and my best friend in the world was met through Twitter and you know it's, yeah that's Kerry Kerry Sackville Kerry, yes yeah you know it wasn't for Twitter yeah uh, yeah anyway well I'm sure you two are looking forward to getting together again now that restrictions have oh. lifted been, yes, 2019 was the last time I was in Sydney. I'm really oh, to that's way too long. Interstate again, one of these days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, we'll get to see each other in person again too. Thanks again. Good luck with the new manuscript, both Thank of them. <laughs> and yes, both of them. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to chatting with you again soon, Kylie. Thank you, Michelle, for your such thoughtful questions and for the wonderful job you are doing with this podcast, which I think really is a great idea. I was fascinated listening to the first episode. I possibly won't listen to this one, but I will be fascinated (laughs) listening to all the other episodes to come. Yeah, well, I hope it helps a lot of writers out there. And I think this session today has been incredibly helpful. So thank you again. My pleasure. So there you go, Kylie Ladd. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview. I really loved talking with Kylie. As I mentioned in the interview, she's great to follow on social media. You can find all her social links on her website at kylieladd.com.au and that's Ladd with a double D. So our April book club pick, very exciting, is The Chase by the one and only Candace Fox. If you've ever heard Candace being interviewed, you know we're in for a treat. Not only is she a brilliant and prolific writer, she's a lot of fun. 
The Chase has been described as an electrifying cat and mouse thriller, and if Candace's other novels are anything to go by, it'll be a cracking page turner full of fabulous and highly original characters. I inhaled the three books in Candace's Crimson Lake series and can't wait to get started on this novel. That's my Easter reading sorted. Thanks, Candace. The publisher, Penguin, has given me an extra copy of the novel to give away. So if you'd like to win The Chase, head over to the Writers Book Club podcast, Instagram or Facebook page and look for the giveaway post with instructions on how to enter. The competition closes on April 5, which isn't long, I know, but I want you to win it and read it before questions close for my interview with Candace. So we have three weeks to read The Chase and think of all the questions we'd like to ask Candace about her writing process. You can find links to buy both paperback and ebook versions of The Chase on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And you can also leave your questions via the form on the website or pop them on Instagram or Facebook under any of the posts. You can also DM me anytime up until the 22nd of April. I'm really looking forward to reading out your question on the next podcast and giving you a shout out. Thank you so much for listening to Writer's Book Club podcast today. You'll find all the show notes and a transcript of today's interview at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And if you like what you hear so far, I'd love to get a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. This podcast was recorded on the beautiful lands of the Garingai people of the Eora Nation. Have a wonderful Easter, everyone, and I hope you get some writing done, but if not, maybe some reading. Have a great break, and I'll see you in May. Take care. Bye. <laughs>